If you have your Bibles, please meet me in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, If you're new with us, we've been walking through uh, the book of Mark. There's kind of four authorized biographies, I call them, on the life of Jesus, and Mark is one of them. So please meet me in Mark chapter 2 as you're making your way there. Always good. So good to be back with uh, my Hope family. Last time I was with you was back in January. I was here in January, which is a great time to come to Vegas. i got to be more discerning and look more carefully at exactly when I get invited to come here, man. It's, you know, I don't know how you guys get used to this stuff, man. It's, it's just hot. Like, I got off the plane, and I swear I saw Satan with a tank top on. Um, <laughs> Uh, anyways, uh, let, me, uh, let me get right to the text. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Mark writes... Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were were fasting. People came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? I mean, I just, I love Jesus, right? Like they ask him a straightforward question and he, they get an answer like that's like this parable kind of deal with the bride. Like, just give me a straight answer. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come, verse 20, when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. God, we we need you to speak to us. This is a simple word, not shallow, but I don't have the capacity to speak to all the needs um, in this place this morning. Um, That's beyond my pay grade. I don't know of all the problems and pressures or backgrounds, experiences my brothers and sisters are here today with, but you know. And so, Lord God, would you take my feeble attempts at, at, at articulation? Would, would you, Lord God, multiply the seed of your word, and would you just do a unique thing in our hearts, stir our hearts for you? Jesus, be the main thing. It's in his name we pray, Amen. I love jazz music. Like, I'm convinced jazz, it's going to be the soundtrack of heaven. Like, when Jesus comes back and get us, him and the Holy Spirit are going to stop by Tower Records. I I shouldn't say that. Jesus is going to say, grab that kind of blue by Miles Davis and a love supreme by John. That's just too good to leave here. That's coming back with us. Like, I love jazz. Uh, You you don't understand. I love jazz so much um, that our middle son's name is Miles after Miles Davis. Well, I read a biography on Miles Davis after I named him Miles, and I got a little buyer's remorse, right? Miles wasn't the nicest person in the world, but as I've told my son Miles all throughout his life, we're going to redeem the name, son. We're going we're to create a new narrative here. I actually wanted to name our youngest son Coltrane, John Coltrane. My wife is like, you're doing too much, <laughs> doing too much right now. I absolutely love jazz. It's hard to believe that there was a time in the history of jazz in which uh, jazz was not this free improv thing that we now know it to be, that there was actually a time in the history of jazz 
where um, jazz was kind of highly structured. It was governed by a lot of rules. Uh, this was jazz in the big band era. You got your sheet of paper and you saw the notes and you stayed within that wonderful sheet of paper. It, it was kind of in a box. It was restricting. It was, it was confining. And then one day all of that changed in 1939 when a guy by the name of Coleman Hawkins came along and he released his groundbreaking culture-shifting album called Body and Soul. What, what he now gave birth to is the jazz as we know it. At, at, time, at the time, it was, it was called this new thing, this genre within a genre known as, as bebop. Bebop has a little bit of structure, not a whole lot. It's known for its fast tempos and, and, and syncopations. It's, it's, it's known as this free thing where the artist has kind of the freedom to veer off the page, to step outside the box, to, to do their thing. In a word, Coleman Hawkins set jazz free. Now, it's interesting. You would think that, that people would fly to this and it would have a kind of a great reception, but eh, not the case. In fact, what's interesting, when guys like Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie uh, Parker, kind of the, the forefathers of this new thing called bebop, whenever they would play and this thing called bebop would start to eke out of their horns, um, uh, the old guard would get up and walk out of the club. They would shake their heads. They would resist. In fact, this is a truism to life, and we see it not just in jazz, but we see it in our text. When a, when a, when a new vision meets, uh, meets an irresistible culture, resistance and rejection always happen. When a new vision meets kind of an inflexible culture, you can count on rejection. We don't do well with change. And so here is Jesus in our text, and our text begins with, with people asking, hey, we've noticed we fast, our disciples fast, but your disciples don't fast. And Jesus responds by saying, yeah, I didn't come to bring big band. I came to bring bebop. This is why he says, no one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. The reason why you don't do that is, is, is there's no elasticity in the old garment. Back then, you know, people didn't get into cars. They walked just about everywhere they went, uh, which meant you spent a lot of time outside exposed to the elements. And if it rained, what, one of the things rain would do is it, it would cause this piece of untrunk cloth now to start to shrink, but it's on an old garment, no elasticity. And so now you've got a tear. You don't put the new with the old. And he goes on to say, no one would dare put new wine into old wineskins. Wineskins were kind of this leathery type of, of substance. And you would put, never put new wine in old wineskins. You'd only put it in new wineskins. Why? Because during the fermentation process, gases would be emitted, which means it would begin to expand. And you needed new wineskins because there was elasticity. But Lord have mercy if you put new wine into old wineskins. There's no elasticity there anymore. And all of a sudden you have a huge mess on your hands. Everybody knows from these analogies, you don't mix, mix old with the new. By the way, parenthetically, Jesus is not being ageist. He is not saying the gospel is only for young people. No, he's dealing with a mindset. 
I know a lot of seasoned saints who have new wineskin thinking, who are flexible, adaptable, open to new ideas. And I know plenty of younger people who get locked in their way of doing things. So this is not about age. But Jesus is saying, you're expecting me to bring big band when I've come to bring bebop. And I'm not mixing them two together. I've come to bring something absolutely new. And like Coleman Hawkins set jazz free, Jesus is saying, I've come to set you free. I've come to give you freedom. And yet this is a problem, isn't it? I, I got a buddy of mine, his church, uh, he, he passes a church back east, and, and their church is literally, literally right next to um, um, a, a stadium. Uh, it's a stadium where professional sports happen, and in fact, it's so next door to them that um, he's actually started an LLC so that they can charge people for parking. And, and, and anyways, the, old, the owner of this kind of um, uh, sports team came to, came to the pastor of the church one day and says, look, man, um, I, I've got a real problem. I, I need more parking, and so what I want to do is I want to give you $22 million for your, for your building. I'm going to demolish it because I, I need more parking. By the way, his church is already paid for. He says, the owner of this team says, I know what you're thinking. Uh, yeah, thank you, but uh, where are we going to meet? And the owner says, I've actually picked the place out for you. It's a couple blocks down the street. I'll build you a new campus, a new building for $1. So you're going you're gonna to leave with $22 million. Well, the bylaws said they had to bring it before the people for a vote. And God bless these seasoned saints. There was a lot of old wineskins in the house that day. Oh, absolutely not. My great-grandmother gave her life savings for this building. And my, you know, great-uncle went to the fish fry and cooked the chitlins and sold the chitlins. Well, I shouldn't say I'm not down south. Y'all don't know what chitlins are. Anyways, um, we gave of our last to make this thing happen, and they voted him down. That's old wineskin thinking. Jesus says, you're coming to me asking me questions about religion. And Jesus says in so many words, I have not come to bring religion. That's big band. I've come to bring the gospel. Never in your life confuse religion with the gospel. Religion says, obey and therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says, I obey to get things from God. The gospel says, I obey to experience more of God. Religion is fear-based. The gospel is joy-based. Religion says it's never enough. The gospel says I am enough. Religion works for approval. The gospel works from approval. Religion is about rules. The gospel is about relationship. 
And, and so this is a theme that Jesus is always pressing on his hearers. If you're here today and, and you, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ and you don't know the, the word of God so much, but maybe you, you've heard of this story. It's a story that Jesus tells of a dad with two lost sons. It's kind of known as the prodigal son. It's the youngest son of his who comes to him one day and, and, and says to his father, give me my share of the inheritance now. Now the Jews listening to this story, their mouths are on the ground because this is incredibly insulting. To ask your father back then for your inheritance inheritance now was the cultural equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. Highly insulting, highly disrespectful, but, but, but the dad doesn't let on. He simply gives it to him, and the text says that the, that the son takes the money, and he goes off into a far country. The Greek word for far country is Las Vegas, and that's where he goes. <laughs> he spends the money. The text says on riotous living, on immorality. At the end of the day, he runs out of money. And in an, in, in an irony of ironies, this, this Jewish kid ends up as a pig farmer selling chitlin dinners. I've got to stop. And then one day he goes, this isn't working out for me. I need to go back home, but I know I've disrespected my father. And so he, he starts thinking in his mind, how can he ingratiate himself to his dad? And so here's, here's what he says I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll go home, and I know I can't go home as a son. I'll, I'll go home as a hired servant. I'll, I'll offer myself and my services to pay off my debt. And so he gathers his things. He goes home. His father's, his father's out on the, on the porch, and he sees a familiar figure coming down the street. And then his dad does what no self-respecting middle-aged Jewish man would do. He, he gathers his robe together, and he sprints out to his son. He hugs his son, and he kisses his son, and his son starts into a speech. God, dad, dad please take me back. I, I, I figured I'd come home as a, as a hired servant. His dad says, nonsense. Put the ring on him. Put the robe on him. Cue the DJ. Let's get, the, let's get, the, let's get this Cupid shuffle going. Let's, let's have a ball. You're not my servant. You're my son. But he actually thought, I'm in debt. I got to pay it off. And the way I'll pay it off is hiring myself out. That's the mindset of religion. All of us in this room, not all of you, all of us, we've done stuff that we're ashamed of. We've broken the heart of God. We've we've done things, thought things, said things that grave us. And for some of us, our reaction is, i got to present myself to God, not as a son or a daughter, but as a hired servant. So I'll be a good boy. I'll come to church. I'll give my money. I'll, I'll have an amazing quiet time. I'll pray and pray and pray. And these things are like hand sanitizer for the soul. Jesus says, are you kidding me? You're not my hired servant. There's a couple things wrong with that thinking. Number one, your bill is way too big. (laughs) But praise God, my love is bigger. (laughs) You can't do enough quiet times. You can't be celibate long enough. The good news of the gospel is he sees you as is, accepts you as is, loves you as is, saves you as is, yet by his grace never leaves you as is. That's bebop. Okay, I want to show you just just three things about the gospel. And my, my aim today is 
I want you to break free of this religious, legalistic mindset. I want you free of that. Because what happens to all of us, all of us in our Christian journey, we, we understand that we're, we're saved by grace through faith, but at some point we forget that what gets us into the kingdom grace is the same thing that keeps us in the kingdom grace. So I, I, want, you to, I want you to really get this simple word in your spirit today. So here is Jesus, and, 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 and he, he's there, and they, they just approach him on this whole idea, whole idea of fasting. And notice Jesus not one time tells them, my disciples will never ever fast. In fact, verse 20, he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and then they will fast in that day. So what I want you to understand, first of all, is the gospel contains old practices, but just for a new purpose. I don't want you to leave here thinking, oh, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, so I don't have to read my Bible, I don't have to pray, I don't have to give money, I don't have to do any, no, 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 no. I love what Dallas Willard says, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. But even the effort that we do exert, it's not for God's approval, it's from his approval. Man, I want to give because he set me free. I, I want to pray because he sent his son to die for me. I, I want to fast. In, in fact, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus helps to solidify this idea that he hasn't done away with fasting. In Matthew chapter 6, he, he says over and over again, when you fast, when you fast, when you fast, not if. So Jesus expects his followers to fast. Now, I, I just want to stop right here. I'm going to pull the car over to the side of the road. I just want to talk to you real quick about fasting. It's going to get really quiet in here because people don't clap when we talk about fasting. <laughs> what is fasting? Fasting is physically abstaining from food to experience the supremacy of the giver over the gift. Fasting says, Jesus, I delight in you more than this double-double animal style from in and out <laughs> Jesus, you mean more to me than your gifts of food. I love what my friend Dave Loman says. Fasting is the believer's attempt to feel Christ in our bodies. Fasting is us saying, Jesus, I treasure you, the giver, more than your necessary gifts of food. I get it. Some of us, we, we organize our days around meals. Like if I asked you what you did yesterday, you're going to tell me what you had for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And please hear me, I'm not here to guilt anyone around this whole issue of fasting. But fasting, watch it now, it is a spiritual discipline or what my friend John Mark Comer says, it is a spiritual practice like prayer and Bible reading and giving and silence and solitude. Fasting, they are practices given to us to enhance effectiveness in the world and intimacy with Christ. We must never disassociate our spiritual practices from the person of who Jesus is. 
Some of you are athletes, and you understand this whole idea of practices and disciplines, and you, you go to practice, and you lift the weights, and you pay attention to the diet, and if you're a basketball player, you, you do the suicides back and forth, but you don't do them for the sake of doing them. You do them because you love the game, and you want to get into the game and be as effective in the game as much as possible. Why do we fast? We don't fast just for the sake of fasting. That's foolish. We fast because we love Jesus and we want to experience more of him and we want to be effective and fruitful in the world in which he's called us. Yes, two people clapped. <laughs> and, and so again, I don't say this in a have-to legalistic way. I, I, don't, I don't say that at all. In fact, I, I got to get on a plane. I'm going to see my sweetheart. Uh, here later on this afternoon, can't wait to see baby girl. Boy, she is the Jerry to my curl, the sugar in my Kool-Aid. I can't wait to see her as I fall over. And of course, I buy her flowers. But the point of flowers ain't the flowers. I do this stuff because I love her. It, it's attached to a person. And so a little bit over a year ago, I was, I was convicted. Let me just give you some th random thoughts on fasting that, that maybe if you want to get into this journey, uh, you might want to find helpful. And I just, I just, fasting wasn't a regular thing for me. And as I started to study the scripture, I, I began to understand that the Jews were all commanded to fast one day out of the years on the Day of Atonement. In the early church, uh, the early believers would fast two days out of every week. Uh, uh, Wednesdays and Fridays, they would fast. These were kind of theirs. It was just kind of a regular rhythm and practice for them. And I, I, I'm just saying, I, I, th there's a dimension of Jesus I feel like I'm not experiencing. And so maybe I'll go down this road of fasting. And so I remember just kind of stepping into it, and I just want to give you three things that I found very encouraging as you're contemplating whether or not fasting is a practice you want to engage in. One, I would simply say be patient with yourself. Some of you are very type A kind of personalities, like, like you've never run a day in your life, but when you're all in, you're all in. You're going to sign up for the full-on marathon. And the reality is you're not going to run out and do 26 miles the first day. So, so, so you have to be patient with yourself. So some of you, I mean, you've never fasted a day in your life, but you're going for, for 40 days. That's what Jesus did. That's what I'm going to do. You ain't going to do that. So maybe you just want to start out with one day, and even with that one day, you might want to go, okay, this week I'm going to do breakfast. Or, uh, so the next week, let's add a couple hours to that. N next week, let's add lunch to that. N next week, let's add dinner to that. But don't lose sight of the person. Be patient with yourself. N number two, I found it to be very helpful. I do it in community. I do it with a group of about 13 other guys. We, we pick the same day every single week to fast, and we're sending a text message to one another. How can I be praying for you? How can, how, how can, how can we be praying together? How can I encourage you? There's just something about being with a band of brothers who are marching in the same direction and knowing you're praying for the same things, bombarding the throne room of heaven. That is just so good for your soul. Thirdly, Focus on Jesus. I, I, I love what John Piper says. John Piper says, hunger pangs are God's trumpet calls to prayer. So what he's saying is when you're fasting and, and you feel hungry, don't just go, can't think about food, can't think about food, can't think about food. Cry out to God. 
Fasting without a focus on Jesus ain't fasting, it's abstaining. This is what we do, but we don't do it because it's a have to. We do it because it's a get to. I get to experience more of him. Now, here's, here's the problem in our text, and here's the problem in this room. Some of us make too little of a deal out of the spiritual practices like prayer and Bible study and fasting. Others of us make too big of a deal out of it. This is exactly the problem here. These guys come to Jesus and they they say, hey, Jesus, we notice your disciples aren't fasting and and yet we're fasting. And and then this takes me back to Matthew chapter 6. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, look at what Jesus says. And and when you fast, hear it again, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Who are the hypocrites? They are the Pharisees. They are the religious leaders in our text. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Back then, when one of these people were fasting, they dumped ash all over their face. They looked gloomy. They looked down. Why? So you can say what's wrong, and they can say, here's what's wrong, I'm fasting. They're not doing it for the glory of God. They're doing it for the applause of people. Here's, here's what we learn. And that is a very good thing can become a very bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. A very good thing becomes a very bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. Fasting is good, but when you use fasting as an, as an identity marker for your godliness, it's sin. When you use your quiet times to, to kind of say, look at me, or when you use your giving to kind of feel better about yourself and somehow you're better than other people, that is sin. We take good things and make them ultimate things. We've got a problem. And so, you know, I was on an airplane the other week, and I I told you I've got a, I got three sons, 21-year-old, 19-year-old, 17-year-old, and two of them around the house. And and my 17-year-old just found out from his school, um, you know, he's done really well academically, and he had transferred in from a private school, and, and they actually said, listen, you can actually graduate a semester early. And I said, man, Jay, that's awesome. What are you thinking about it? And Jay's like, yeah, I think we'll pray about it. I said, no, you don't need to pray about it. I've, I've heard from God. <laughs> God wants you to leave quickly. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I didn't say that to him. I thought it. <laughs> and so I've been uber-reflective as we're on the precipice of, intern- of, uh, of empty nests, and here I am, I... I just gotten on a plane a couple weeks ago, and um, as, I'm, as I'm boarding, I scan my ticket with the gate agent. The gate agent says, uh, uh, thank you, Dr. Loritz, for your um, diamond elite status. And I just remember sitting on a plane thinking about her, her congratulations of me and just thinking, man, what an idiot. There's nothing proud of being diamond elite. All, all those trips I went on that I didn't have to go on. But I was kind of, yeah, I could use the extra paycheck and trying to provide my kids with a certain standard of living. Work is a wonderful gift. But how many ball games did I miss? How many dinners did I miss? I took a very good thing like work and I made it an ultimate thing. And it became a bad thing because I missed out on people. That's exactly what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is like, man, awesome. I'm so glad you are doing your read through the Bible in a year plan. Wonderful. And you're checking it off. You're tracking. You're ahead of schedule. But you haven't really experienced me. 
You're so busy checking things off the list that at some point the list became more important than the person. Do you see how we can take good things and make them very bad things? When the list becomes more important than the person, we call that legalism. Legalism is the thought that my identity and sense of self-worth is not ultimately in the finished work of Jesus Christ, but it's rerouted to my performance. It's rerouted to my performance. And this is the other thing I want to show you. The gospel is focused, yes, on a person and not a performance. Jesus is like, man, you, you are completely missing the whole point. You are asking me about my disciples and fasting when I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, they'll fast after I leave. I mean, it's sort of like you, you've, been go, you've been saving up for this dream vacation to Hershey Park, the mecca of chocolate, and you get there and you decide to fast from sugar. Are you kidding me? You're in Hershey Park. Idiot. <laughs> Fast from sugar when you get home. Jesus is saying, I'm Hershey Park. It's <laughs> probably the only time you've ever heard Jesus equated with chocolate. <laughs> in a sermon where I talked about fasting. That's awesome. <sighs> there was this woman, she, she came to me just the other week. I was uh, down front. And uh, praying with people, and um, it was her, her husband, their two kids, and they were the last people uh, in the sanctuary as well after service had ended. And, and she's upset. She's visibly upset. And she's uniquely dressed. I mean, she's covered from, I mean, the only thing you see are her hands and her face. Everything else, it's covered. And it's like, it's humid hot in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I am right now. This, this is kind of weird for this time of year, but okay. And she comes to me, and she's clearly upset. I says, man, what's wrong? And she goes, none of the women in this church take the Bible seriously. And I'm going, that's a heck of a statement. Okay, explain that to me. Well, the Bible, if you take it seriously, says that women should dress modestly. Now, these are clearly North Carolina problems, not Vegas problems. <laughs> and she's going on and on and on, and pretty much she's saying, everybody should dress like me. And I'm saying, well, well listen, ma'am, I'm, I'm not here to... I'm not here to get, get between you and the Lord and your convictions. If this is what you feel the Lord wants you to dress like, amen. I want you to feel the freedom here. But, but where I get a little concerned is where, where you take what the Bible doesn't speak clearly on and you make that a rule that everybody else has to conform to. That's the problem I have. Well, the Bible says it's for everybody. Okay. Well, see, now, now she's tapping into my passive-aggressive side. I said, you take the Bible seriously, every bit of it. Really? Well, did you know in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, women are commanded to wear head coverings? I don't see a head covering. <laughs> see, this is the problem with legalists. You can't keep all the rules. You can't keep all of them. 
It's exhausting to keep all the rules. And she turned and walked away, and she was screaming and yelling at me in the house of the Lord. And I had two thoughts. One thought is, poor husband. Like, I want to hug you. Like, bro, that's what you're going home to tonight? My second thought is, poor kids. We know how that movie ends, don't we? Do you think their kids are going to grow up loving Jesus? No. We want nothing to do with that. If that's what Jesus is, that's the surest way to make a rebel. Is to overwhelm them with rules. Where the punchline of everything is check it off the list. This is what I want you to see as we close. The gospel is not about our performance. It's about our pleasure. Brian, where do you, where do you get that? Right? That, sounds, that sounds scandalous. Verse 19, and Jesus said to them as we close, Can the wedding guests feast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Here's what he's doing. The idiom of the day is when you got married back in the day and, and the marriage ceremony was over and the, and the husband kissed the, kissed the bride, you didn't hop on a plane to go to Cabo. I know they didn't have planes back then. Just work with me. You didn't immediately go on your honeymoon. Instead, what you did is you, you went to your reception, and your reception was a minimum of seven days. And during those seven days, everybody's coming in, man, and, man, they're eating good food. They're popping bottles. They're dancing to the left, to the I mean, they're just doing all of it. Imagine in the middle of all that, someone coming in saying, shouldn't we be fasting? You don't fast at wedding receptions. Jesus says, I'm the wedding reception. I'm here. It's a time of joy. Take your rules and go somewhere else with them. It's, it's joy. I think when each of the disciples die and you were to ask them, what, what's, what's the expression that's etched in your mind on Jesus' face? I think they would each say, joy, laughter. Parents, when your kids turn 30, 40 years old, and they reflect on their tour of duty in your home. <laughs> and they close their eyes. Wh what expression do they see on your face? Is it a scowl that says never enough? I think one of the best things I ever did as a parent, my, my boys love Legos. And my wife, it was just her and her sister growing up. And for the, for the life of my wife, she couldn't figure out why boys just wouldn't play with the Legos and put them back up in the box and put them away at three years old. <laughs> so she would get ticked off and, honey, the place is a wreck. Can you please get on the boys? And so I just, the best thing I ever did as a parent, I went upstairs and I said, okay, let's have a party. And we just threw all the Legos in the air, and we just jumped up and down. Yeah, we cleaned up later. 
But I didn't want to come up those stairs yelling and fussing at my kids because 20, 30 years later, I want them to remember dad threw Legos in the air. That's the Jesus I know. That's why the psalmist would say in Psalm 16, and Pastor Trenton said it last week, and it bears repeating. It says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. I love it. In your presence, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Notice he doesn't say, in your rules. So all of us in this room, we're looking for joy. Some of us, you think joy is found in rules. This is exactly the Pharisees' problem. They're looking for joy in rules. Do you know, I've never seen a joyful referee. (laughs) Have you? I've never seen a referee just go, man, this game is awesome. This is amazing. Why don't we see joyful referees? Because they're too fixed on finding out what's wrong. Can, can I tell you something? It's got to stay here. Just, just us. My oldest son has some tattoos. I'm not into tattoos. Can we just keep this here? But he's got one I kind of like. In big words across his chest, he says, it says, comparison is the thief of joy. It's the enemy of joy. Something like that, thief, enemy. These Pharisees are too busy comparing themselves to Jesus' disciples. And when you go down the rabbit hole of comparison, joy disappears. It just disappears. I've never met a joyful legalist. But look, I know where I am. I'm in Vegas. Where nobody is actually from Vegas. I mean, if you came from back east. And some of you grew up in very rules-driven homes. And some of you, you came to Vegas to get away from all that. And you're looking for joy not in rules, but in rebellion. I'm going to drink as much as I want. I'm going to smoke as much as I want. I'm I'm, going to do whatever I want to with my body. But here's what you're learning. That's not joy. I've been been pastoring for over 30 years. I've never met a joyful adulterer. Pastor been cheating on my wife two years. Joy. (laughs) Just haven't met that person. What I have met is a wearied legalist. And I have met a wearied rebel. And you know what Jesus says? Come to me, Matthew 11, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is saying you ain't going to find joy in your rules, and you ain't going to find joy in your rebellion, but you'll find joy in me. I'm where it's at. All of us in this room, we've heard of a woman named Harriet Tubman. I think she's the most courageous person in American history. Her story is pretty simplistic. She, she was a slave on a plantation down south in a, 
in a courageous act, she fled from there. She found her freedom up north. She gets up north. She's resting in freedom. And then she's just thinking to herself, this is awful. I got all these family members and friends back down south who are slaves. I can't just leave them there while I enjoy freedom. And so she does a crazy thing. She takes trip after trip after trip at great danger to herself back down south and leads them all the way back up to freedom. But historians tell us when Harriet Tubman would gather these bands of people right there on the plantation under the cover of night to lead them into freedom, she would always say the same thing to them. She would point out how what's ahead is very dangerous, and then she would say, but no matter what we do, don't lose sight of me. Don't do your own thing. Don't venture off trying to figure it out. That's going to end up in your death. Follow me. Don't lose sight of me. Oh, friends, Jesus is the true and better Harriet Tubman. He was living up north in freedom and saw us languishing in bondage on the plantation of sin down south on earth. So he came down south to earth and lived a life we could never live and died the death we should have died. They hung him high on a cross. They buried him in a borrowed tomb. They, they put him in this tomb where three days later he resurrected according to the scriptures, ascended on high. And now Jesus is saying to us the same thing. Don't lose sight of me. Don't venture off doing your own thing. Don't wander off thinking you'll find it in rules or rebellion. Keep me as the main thing in your life. And when you do that, there is freedom. For the whom the sun sets free is free indeed. I, I want us now to just prepare our hearts. Would you just spend a moment maybe just reflecting? I don't know what the Spirit of God is saying to you as our prayer team is coming, as our pastors are coming. But Jesus is saying, I'm here for your joy. Will you stop trying to find it independent of me? No, this isn't a call to not pray or fast. Or, but those things are a means into an end. I am the end, Jesus says. And so, Father, we thank you. We bless you, Lord God. This is the great struggle of the Christian life. It is to rest in the freedom that Christ provides. Where we say, I'm not my best day, I'm not my worst day. I'm, I'm a son, I'm a daughter of Christ. And so, Lord God, I, I, I pray this blessing over every person here today. They are not hired hands who are here to work off a debt. They are sons and daughters. And so I pray these words that God, you said to your son Jesus when he emerged from those baptism waters, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I, I believe he's saying to us, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. I'm well pleased in you. No amount of quiet times or lack of quiet times can change that. We receive this word today in Jesus' name.